Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 188. Well, just ahead, gaming company Roblox seeing explosive growth. And J.B. Hunt gives us perhaps the last word on supply chain grief. And Avocado King Calavo growers juggling cost pressures on the fury of Mother Nature. And now they got to deal with me. We sit down with the Cavallo CEO, Brian Coker. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another ev- critical event or insight ever with Era. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy to use customizable interface. That's Era, A I E R A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down in so many ways. The iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn decision is such a tough one. But once you make that decision how to listen to our show, hit the subscribe button, click that button to make sure that you can catch every single episode. And the drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We talk about the business stories behind Stocks on a Move, helping me do so. As always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, is it dry down there in LA finally? Corey, it has stopped raining, uh, but everything's still wet. Yeah. Yeah. We got a muddy Same yard. Here. My backyard's a swamp. But hey, I'll be celebrating when everything's blooming. So happy. You have a big pool in your backyard. Yeah. Is it's, a swamp surrounding the pool? Yeah, it's a swampy pool. That's very Florida of you. I love, yeah. Yeah, you have always wanted to Florida live there. Florida man in Los Angeles. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Roblox. Roblox trades under RBLX. Shares have jumped 24% in a month, but if you look at a 12-month chart, uh, they're lower by 55%. So down until they were up. Uh, one of the reasons they're up are the December metrics that came out for this company released uh, in the last day or so. Um, they uh, saw a lot of increases in all the important metrics, including daily active users who spent more time on the platform, but that didn't help year-over-year revenue growth. Uh, Company management suggested that uh, they are, however, seeing improvements across all of their core markets. The one that really interested me, Isaac, however, is uh, uh, the age of the players, of the users of Roblox. I think of it as something that my my now 16-year-old daughter uh, uh, turned me on to a year ago uh, that Roblox was was a kid thing and a kid gaming creation community. But the increase in the age of their players and their expansion in content and developers to a broader, uh, older group of people um, is helping the company in their growth. And they gave a really interesting vision of that uh, on the conference call this week when they were talking about 
fourth quarter earnings. Now, I will also say that the company announced they were going to stop releasing monthly metrics, which they had done since before the IPO and afterwards. Um, less metrics is never um, beloved by investors. It's often a sign of problems, although it may not be in this case. I don't know, but I hate it when companies strip out parts of my model that have helped me understand the business. But helping me understand the business even more, perhaps, was the CEO's commentary about the way uh, some other companies are doing marketing on the platform of Roblox. Here's CEO Dave Bazzucchi. Very early on in Roblox, uh, we started building Roblox items with the vision that ultimately we want our user and community base to be really the provider of all UGC items, both clothing, avatar items, avatars, all of that. And the final a step of that that we are in the process of completing is a limited marketplace. What this means is a creator such as, I'll use Gucci as an example, can be validated. They can have a blue check mark next to their profile. And if they so choose, they can make 10 of something rather than an unlimited number. Those items can be indexed. And just like in the real world where we have both high volume items, uh, I, I always call white t-shirts the example of a high volume, low brand item. Just as we have that, we're moving to an economy where top brands will have limited index items. The items that Roblox has made, which we want our creators to make, that we've done in a limited fashion, for example, our Dominus crowns, trade at $20,000 on the platform. And we believe we will see similar trade value, similar uh, things that we see in the real world with scarce items, with some of these. We, uh, we believe this is gonna be really fun, really good for engagement, and will ultimately expand our economy so it does look uh, more like the real world and we have very high priced items as well. The metric this affects is bookings per hour or monetization. And when we affect bookings per hour, it affects the whole platform because we're driving those hours and raises monetization. So yes, bookings per hour, one of those many metrics we won't get monthly anymore from this company. But uh, nonetheless, I think that's an interesting vision on how, actually it reminded me, Isaac, of kind of the NFTs, right? Where you, you create a digital item that is limited in its issuance and thereby has more value. I don't know. I don't know if that works here in Roblox. I don't know if it works with NFTs, but that's the concept. Explain to me why they, I had trouble with this terminology, the word bookings. Why do they use the word bookings? I have not used Roblox, so it's all, you know, Greek to me, as as, I, they, I, as, I, as our I, grandfathers said. Yeah, and I'll have to, and I'll have to look up how this company in particular defines bookings. But typically bookings are customers who've promised to buy the product or have uh, uh, booked the usage of the product for the future, but they can't recognize the revenues yet. So quite often a company Got will report it. their bookings, which is a sale, but they're not allowed to report the revenue because they haven't delivered the product yet. So if someone buys, for example, a two-year subscription to a product mm -hmm. and pays up front, they can only they can only recognize one twenty-fourth every month. Does Got that it. Sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Maybe I should go to Roblox. You see shady companies play around with the revenue recognition of, of the duration of bookings, and they'll shorten the period in which they think they can uh, um, recognize the book. They can't shorten the 24-month period, but they can play with how many customers typically cancel and how much they can recognize. And uh, uh, these are this is why the changes in revenue recognition are always 
uh, a warning sign uh, when you find those showing up in SEC filings. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at the shipping giant, the intermodal shipping giant, J.B. Hunt. Uh, J.B. Hunt trades under J.B.H.T. and shares have gained almost 5% in a month. They're still 6% lower, though, if you look at a 12-month chart. Yeah, so the, to me, this is this is one of the greatest ways for us to understand the, the phrase that we've said more in the last year than we've said in the rest of our lives, probably, which is supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, uh, coffee drink. with a friend who runs a... <laughs> Is that, is that what drink every, time, right? every time I'd, we say supply chain, drink. Well, I had coffee with a friend who runs uh, an organic dog food business or, or like a real food dog food business. Uh-huh. Um, and she says the, 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 the nightmares in her supply chain stuff, like the lamb that she's trying to get from New Zealand is on a ship that's stuck in the San Francisco Bay that can't make it to the dock. And so right. suddenly her whole supply chain is group. And, you know, multiply that times gazillion, because that's what we've been hearing from companies really uh-huh. for the last two years. Maybe... Finally, that's over. Because what J.B. Hunt had to say in their conference call, yes, they announced a fourth quarter um, uh, numbers and they were seen as a disappointment of Wall Street, whatever. Revenues up 4%, the $3.7 billion. Profits down, even though revenues were up. Operating income was down 13% um, for the quarter. Um, now that's saying for the year, things are really good. So things have been getting worse from a profitability standpoint at J.B. Hunt. Um, lower shipping demand cut into the volumes. For, for freight, maybe suggesting more recessionary talk. Um, but the freight-related revenues, excluding fuel, were off about 3%. So that's interesting. Uh, this Lowell, Arkansas-based company, however, I think is most interesting when you look at the intermodal segment. That is the things when they're combining both truck and rail transport. And that business was down 8% uh, and maybe it's really suggesting um, a slowdown of shipping. But again, the thing most interesting to me was how are these guys working on an intermodal basis, right, with the trains versus trucks or trains with trucks or moving things off trucks onto trains, um, and and how are customers taking that, and are they actually able to ship stuff and get the stuff that they want when they need it? Here is the uh, EVP of intermodal, Darren Field, also taking a question towards the end of the sound by listening for uh, Chris Weatherby from Citigroup asking him, kind of where we are with things uh, and and getting a nice response, an interesting response, I think. Check this out from uh, J.B. Hunt. Universally, our customers are uh, positive towards uh, reconverting highway business that, that should be intermodal. I think they're appropriately cautious in saying, hey, J.B. Hunt and BNSF, I need you to prove it to me that you're going to get your service and velocity quality back and i think we're aligned uh like we continue to say every quarter more than ever with bnsf on that mission i have uh, talked to my team at length for months now about rebuilding confidence in our customers our customers are looking for ways to save money and intermodal is a way for them to save money and as velocity improves, it even helps in inventory carrying costs. And so, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, of of opportunities for us to continue to talk about growing uh, intermodal. And and certainly, uh, I don't know of a customer telling us I'm not interested in converting business to intermodal. I think across the board, our customer base is very receptive. Um, but I do want to at least acknowledge um, there's a bit of a 
a lag in that process, and I think we are, are busy proving to the customers that the service quality and velocity has improved and will continue to improve as, as the year goes on. And just one point of clarification, just is BNSF Rail service where it needs to be to make that value proposition to the customer? Yeah, you know, um, I would say um, it's early, um, but so far in January, our rail service is the best it's been since the first quarter of 2020, and so that's a really positive sign. We're not quite to where we want to be fully, but there is massive improvement in the rail service today. So, Isaac, that sounds to me like here's one of the biggest companies that should know supply chain issues, at least moving things through this country, train or by truck, uh, is better uh, with massive improvement, uh, to use the direct quote. Yeah, we haven't really heard this, you know, what he said, massive improvement in the rail service. I don't think we've heard anyone say that yet. So that's that is very, uh, very promising. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll, and so another one, this is a chance for us to call BS on some of the companies that say they're still having problems. If J.B. Hunt, who's actually doing the shipping, is saying there aren't any more problems. Massive improvement. Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, it's a big week for bank earnings. And so I thought it'd be interesting to look at KeyCorp, the Cleveland-based parent company to uh, KeyBank. Uh, KeyCorp trades under Key, Key, uh, Key. K-E-Y is how you spell key, and that's what they trade under. And shares have dropped over 5% since the start of 2023, and they've dropped 35% in a year. Yeah, and, and, a, and a kind of a bad, yeah, as you mentioned, bad couple of weeks here. Um, company reporting earnings for the fourth quarter uh, that were, you know, profits were down a lot, down 31% uh, on a year-over-year basis for the quarter. Uh, so, I'm um, oh, sorry, year, sorry, fourth quarter earnings down, down 30% from the end, end of the third quarter, but down on a year-over-year basis, 41%. Big drop here. The real challenge, loan origination. They are just not able to get people to borrow money like they were because rates are going up. So even though in a rising interest rate environment you would think is good for banks because they can make more money, they don't make more money if they can't put more loans out there. And one of the businesses that uh, the Key Bank, Key Corp, is really focused on is student loans and student loan refi. And student loan refi is so important to these guys because they see it as a way to bring young customers into the bank and into banking. And so if you go on, on you know, they, they bought a business called GradFin. Uh, and if you want to go on the GradFin website, right away, it, it doesn't just tell you to, to, uh, to uh, you know, reconcile your student debt, refinance your student debt, pull your student loans together into one place. It's instantly trying to help set you up with automatic uh, deposits into a brand new checking account and issue you a credit card and really puts you inside the key bank system. So their inability to loan to students and to get students to refi under the key bank roof and using their grad fin business uh, has really slowed down the growth, not just the growth and profits for this quarter, but the growth they expect to have for uh, years to come because they're not getting the young borrowers that they thought they were gonna get, the young uh, customers, they thought they were going to get. Here's CEO Chris Gorman talking about that struggle on loan origination just this week. Obviously, from a straight origination outlook perspective, has been challenged. It's been challenged really by three things. One is the federal loan student payment holiday. That's a challenge. I think that's been extended several times. The, the next is just the rising interest rates, which are a challenge. And the third challenge that we've had there is 
all the discussion around student loan debt forgiveness obviously, I think, has some borrowers wanting to stay on the sidelines to preserve optionality. Having said all of that, um, I was impressed that we were able to originate uh, last year $1.5 billion of refinance loans. But even a bigger picture, Ken, is we are trying to create a national digital affinity bank. So first of all, those originations will come back, and they'll come back when there's clarity around all the issues I just talked about. And there's a bunch of raw material being priced right now that you'll be able to refinance advantageously. But in the meantime, what we've done is build this national digital affinity bank that has a full suite of products for doctors, a whole suite of products for nurses. Um, we're getting a 30% cross-sell um, on the business that we do. So the, there's no question that originations have been challenged and they'll continue to be challenged in the very near term. But what we're trying to do there is a lot broader. This, this GradFin business that we bought is really interesting because they're the leader in public service loan forgiveness. And where you're going to see a lot of discussion going forward is around this income-based repayments. And we're kind of uniquely qualified to be in there advising on that. Anytime we advise people, obviously, we'll bring them on as full customers. So that refi business, uh, Isaac, is just kind of the, uh, the, the, the trick, the, the, the breadcrumbs to get those, those young customers, those 20-somethings, in the door where they might stay for a long time at KeyBank, but it's not happening right now. All right, coming up next, we're talking all things avocado. This fascinating business with the largest importer of avocados into the country, Calavo Growers, uh, talking about how that business works, how that business is challenged. And yes, shocker, it's seasonal. They, they grow stuff, of course, it's seasonal. Brian Coker, the CEO, joins us. Again, fascinating conversation. I think you'll really like it right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. Joining us right now, as promised, the CEO of Calavo Growers, Brian Cooker, Joins us right now, uh, Brian Gundy. Where are you, Brian, right now? I'm in Santa Paula, beautiful, rainy Santa Paula, but no one in California should complain about getting rain right now. Uh, oh, well, after the drought we've had for so many years. Hey, I, I was listening to your, oh, first of all, uh, you guys grow avocados, you sell avocados, uh, you sell prepared foods made from avocados. And I debated whether or not it was thoroughly ridiculous that I was thinking about guacamole margins all morning as I prepared to talk to you today. Um, something oh, I've wonderful. Really much I, of. Strangely enough, I think about guacamole margins all, all morning as well. I'll bet you do. The thing that really cracked me up is when I was thinking, you know, I was writing on some questions to talk to you and said, yours is a seasonal business. Yeah, you grow things. Of course, it's a seasonal business. You know, when, when retailers talk about being seasonal or every other company talks about being seasonal, it's like, yeah, you know, the reason they call it that is because there used to be, you know, some businesses are actually seasonal. Tell me about... Um, what the company looked like when you arrived there, when they announced your hiring about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. Yeah, so so Colabo has a wonderful history, uh, uh, almost a 100-year-old history, predominantly in, in avocados in California and then expanding to Mexico 25 years ago. Avocados makes up about 60%, 55, 60% of our business. About 10 years ago, uh, we, we purchased a, a fresh-cut fruit business, Renaissance Food Group, 
um, that, that does fresh cut fruit, fresh cut vegetable, but think of it as ready to eat healthy foods, uh, maybe snacks like cut strawberries, maybe even sandwiches or dips or, or uh, cheese trays. But but really, that's now in your prepared role. food. Like you guys get new segmentation. Prepared food, prepared food is it? That's yeah, exactly right. And and along with that is is guacamole, which is obviously a derivative of a of a long um, avocado business. So when I got here, doesn't it, grow on the frankly, chip. For those of you who eat guacamole and don't prepare it, it doesn't actually grow on the chip or in a bowl. Correct. That is, it correct. You, you add the chip later. <laughs> um. But when I arrived, uh, Calabo had gone through some transition, uh, struggled a little bit in their prepared business. That had led to a decrease in revenue growth and a decrease in profitability. Um, and, and really, they were going through a CEO transition and, and looking for someone who might be able to interject uh, a little bit of energy, uh, a little bit of direction, um, financial discipline. And I, I've got a history of doing that in the produce uh, arena. And I'm excited about our categories. Avocado still has tailwinds of, of consumption growth, fresh cut, ready to eat, um, convenience items has tailwinds with, with consumers. So we operate in two great categories that give us a chance to grow. So I looked at this business and said, we've got strong consumer trends in a business that whose issues to date are eminently fixable. Um, this sounds like a great opportunity for for me and for Calavo and for us. Yeah, super interesting uh, business. Talk to me about those tailwinds of avocado uh, consumption. The country, the U.S. at least, is at, at uh, what three billion uh, tons a year? About that. I mean, pounds a year. That, excuse me. Yeah, three three billion pounds a year. Um, yes. Yeah, three billion tons. We'd take two, but uh, three billion <laughs> good, pounds a good year. Good luck with that. Um, but, but it's also uh, still growing. There's still consumption opportunities. The, the West is over-indexed in terms of consumption per capita, meaning in the East on a, on a per capita basis, they consume about one third of the, of the avocados in a year that, that um, Western citizens do. So th there's an opportunity there, but there's even an opportunity internationally. Europe and Asia are growing faster than the US on a per capita consumption basis. Um, still smaller, but growing faster. And uh, we've got a wonderful product that can withstand a long, longer supply chain when it's when it's maintained correctly. And uh, we think we've got real big opportunities to grow, not only in the U.S. as that market continues to grow, but internationally as well. Let's stick with it with the the consumption with the regional differences. I think it is interesting. I was thinking back to I used to work with this anchor uh, network I used to work at, and when she would come visit. She was so excited, come to visit San Francisco, so excited about the avocado toast in the, in the deli down below our, our bureau. I was like, what's the big deal? It's just, it's avocado toast. You can get it at every deli in the, in the neighborhood. But if, to a New Yorker, that was a real rare treat 10 years ago, and maybe it's still. What, what, is, what is that more specifically, and why is that? Well, I, I think it first started with the growing region. The large right. preponderance of the, of the produce in the United States is grown in California, um, Nevada and Mexico. So there is already a transition, a transportation transition across the U.S. to get produce in, in the East. Now, that's not universal, but in general, I'm talking about. So first, I love coming to, to California and being in California because all of the produce just seems fresher. And why? Well, it's four hours from the, from the farm. Sure, it's sure. not three and a half days. So right, I think isn't the number something like 45% of the food Americans eat comes from California? No doubt. Yeah, yeah. 
something around there. And, and if you look at commodity specific, it would be even higher. Uh, lettuce and strawberries are even higher than that, as an example. Right, right. And avocados. Um, so that's one of the big differences in consumption. I, I think for a while, certainly California and uh, Nevada, Texas, I would say, are, are over-indexed with, re- with respect to the Latino population as well. And, and I think that relative to the rest of the U.S. And I think that plays a, a big difference because if you go to our friends south of the border in Mexico, the avocado is a staple of almost every meal, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And, and that Latino culture has, has helped spur avocado growth in the U.S. So what, what are the growth rates like in the U.S.? You know, if you look at the growth rates in the U.S. now, I'd say mid single digits to high single digits growth rates. When when supply is not constrained, and we've had wow, that, uh, was we've had that brings us to 2022. When supply is not constrained. So supply out of Mexico was greatly constrained last year, and yet supply out of Peru was uh, oversupplied, if you at least over historic you know, the past few years. Has grown. That seemed right. to hurt you guys in some ways. Most of your metrics are fantastic, but I didn't really understand that because it seems like your um, uh, uh, business model value proposition is that you are a market maker. You go in there um, on a daily basis. It's not like you own the avocado farms. It's not like you have long-term contracts. It, s- it sounds like, or at least that's right. what I read in your no, SEC filings, that you go into the marketplace and buy avocados. And so it seems that if you have undersupply in Mexico and oversupply in Peru, that shouldn't make any difference in how much product you bring in. And yet it did last year. Why is that? Yeah. You know what, Corey, I would tell you over the long term, it doesn't make much difference. You know, we target a, a return on a on a per case basis of somewhere in the range of three to four dollars. And if you look over the course of 2022 in a market that depending on whether supply was constrained or or for a period of time, it was excess. We had market prices that went from thirty five dollars a box in February to seventy dollars a box in June. Back, back down, down to, to 30, 30 in July. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so in that volatility. We still manage to deliver for the year, deliver for the year almost exactly our gross margin per case uh, between three and, and four dollars, almost exactly. Yeah, but, mar- the but, but your goal surely isn't just how much because you could buy one case and call that a successful year if that was the only margin. hundred percent, right? The number it's volume as well. It's the it's the combination of those two, right? But I guess my my point that I'm explaining is over the course of the year or a course of a period of time. Our model as a marketer, we think is very valuable. We're buying and selling on a daily basis. We don't have long-term contracts. If a market is tough, I'm not forced to sell a whole bunch of fruit into a bad market that because I've grown it, now I need something to do with it. We believe we're a little bit more nimble and that provides us a more sustainable long-term business model. However, in short periods of time, you can have what I would call market disconnects. And I would call July and August one of those market disconnects. Mexico was still a little short. Peru was significant. And the combination of the, and remember, Mexico in terms of a source is probably still eight times bigger than Purdue or, sure. or Peru. So, and for you as well. And for us as well. So, you know, those disconnects in a short period of time certainly impact us. And, and we're, our model is really good um, throughout market ups and downs. I, I don't exactly prefer a market up, but versus a market down. Um, but we we have challenges when that pace is really fast. Um, if, if the market comes down Don't really fast, 
then we're trying to get out of inventory and we're trying to to get back to a to a normalized uh, profit and return and volume and and so that certainly is an area that that causes us some challenge but overall i love the fact that we're a marketer yeah it's it's an interesting um i I don't know that i've ever heard of a company that's totally focused on sort of a straight dollar per unit margin as opposed to a percentage gross margin well that one of the reasons it it, it, we pay attention to all the metrics sure I, i pay attention to volume i pay attention to margin percent i pay attention to gross profit per case one of the reasons that we de-emphasize margin per case, or uh, sorry, de-emphasize margin, margin percent, right. is because of that volatility in the revenue. So it's not always a great indicator of um, profitability or a great ind- indicator of your value in the marketplace. If I am getting a $2 a box margin on a $20 market, that's a 10% margin. If I'm getting a $7 a case gross profit on a $70 margin, that's 10% gross margin, but I'd rather be having the $7 a, a case. Sure. So, so I would say we don't, we ignore it. I, we don't ignore it, but it is certainly de-emphasized because I don't believe gross margin percent is a great metric for representing the health of, of your business when you're trading a commodity that, that is, has some volatility to it. Now, you've made some really big changes in terms of um, segmentation within your business, or at least what you call those segments if the business aren't different. And uh, those are mildly interesting to me. I'm very interested uh, in the way that you have um, really changed your balance sheet. You came into this company and have really quickly kind of eliminated virtually all of your debt. And I wonder what flexibility that gives you. And, in, in, you know, I don't, is a rising interest rate environment matter to you in that case or no? Well, I think we're always uh, interested in um, the, the impacts uh, or, or the circumstances that could impact our capital structure. So rising interest rates do, we pay attention to them. Yeah. Um, you know, we pay attention. Now, when it, you it have- could, it, could less, hurt, it could hurt your earnings ability if, if you got any variable interest in But there. when you have less debt, you're less susceptible to that as well, right. for sure, right? So what having a clean balance sheet does is give us flexibility. If we see something that that potentially we want to some capital projects we want to invest in, maybe we want to open up a new market, maybe we want to test a new product. We've got financial when, when you have zero debt, but you have borrowing capacity. We now have flexibility to to invest, flexibility to to move quickly. And in my business, this this is a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day business. Having the flexibility on a moment's notice to say. This is an opportunity. I want to take advantage of it. I think that's important because I think first movers have a wonderful advantage. Uh, you're opening a new facility, and explain what you're doing in Jalisco. Is that right? So, so yeah, we have a, we've had a facility for five or six years in in maybe seven now in Jalisco, the the state of Jalisco in Mexico. Up until the end of July, Jalisco was not authorized by the USDA to export avocados into the U.S. The entire the state. Of, what's that? The entire state was not. The entire state. The entire state of Jalisco. Now, we had prepared for it several years ago, and it, it did not come to fruition. And so we, we've been operating in Jalisco, but we've been operating it for some small international customers. At the end of July, Jalisco as a state, now the far, individual farms had to be certified, our packing house had to be certified, but Jalisco as a state 
was open for export to the US. And we were already prepared and ready. And what that does is it gives us optionality. So when you are a marketer, when you're buying and selling every day, in general, I like more sourcing options and more selling options because then I can arbitrage in between those two. And opening up Polisco has given us another opportunity to source very high quality Mexican fruit whose transportation cost to the U.S. is almost identical as, as the state of Michoacan in, in Mexico and gives us a chance to provide our customers consistent quality at the right price year round. Gives us more chance to do that. Is the fruit very different from Peru to Nicaragua? To, or or You're not in Nicaragua. You're in uh, Guatemala, right? And Peru, or Mexico? We're, we do some sourcing in Col- uh, Colombia. Uh, I'd say we test a little bit in other regions for sure. Is the fruit very different from place to place? The fruit has some differences in potentially oil content and or, and or um, texture or fi- right. uh, fiber, uh, the fibrous nature of the, of the pulp. I do think it'd be hard for a, a consumer to very quickly identify that. It, it, it's not much difference. Um, and, and also maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was. The oil content was very different in Peru and um, and you could tell, a consumer could tell, but it's getting better and better globally. You see, food industry people, my father was in the food industry, um, so I've been around it my whole life. They like consistency in product because they think the consumer likes that. And, and you know, I, I, for me, I, I love the differences in, in different uh, uh, vegetables and fruits and, and, and meat and whatever else. And foods are natural things. But it's, it's an interesting challenge, particularly when you get into the prepared business. So talk to me about what you're doing at General Mills. Oh, this is a, a wonderful relationship. So we have a, uh, a, a guacamole processing business that, that we, we make 300 different guacamole, some with salsa, some chunky, some spicy, but we do that for both retail and food service customers. Um, we now have, have a partnership with General Mills to be the exclusive distributor of Old El Paso guacamole and salsa. Old El Paso is a trusted brand name in the United States. It's in a third of all U.S. households. Um, never really been in a in a walk in a salsa line, so a fresh salsa line. Um, so we we've got a real opportunity to use the brand that they've invested in for years and years and years as an entry point in retail for our walk and salsa product. So I'm excited about that. It's in the early stages. Yeah, well, they, um, don't, have a, they don't have it, experience but, in fresh, do they? I mean, that's an entirely different distribution model. You've got different kind of salespeople. It is, but that's our, That's why it's a, a nice licensing agreement. We'll do the processing. We'll do the sales. We'll do the distribution all within our existing fresh distribution. You basically network, just get their name on it. And we get their name. And, you know, we'll talk to them some about some other things, joint marketing yeah. and, and some, some joint promotional support. But I'm really excited that, that this is an entryway into retail that uh, frankly, you know, there's not a lot of the guac providers that have a nice brand that have invested years and years and years to, to develop a recognized brand. So we believe that How many grocery big... stores do you have? So your salespeople might already be knocking on the doors of those grocery stores, but now- They better, new... they so... better already be knocking on the door <laughs> or they're gonna have another question to answer. I've been that guy too. Canada Dry Ginger Ale, I could sell it to you, you know. A lot more you never need because that's what I had to do once. But, I, um, but what, how, what's the right metric there? Is it how many grocery stores you're talking to on a regular basis? Your salespeople are calling on? Is it how many regions you're in? How many states you're in? 
Oh, I definitely think it's it's that entire funnel mechanism. It's how many are we calling? How many have we presented to? How many are, are doing a test? And then ultimately, how much stores, how many stores do we have in distribution, which would generate volume? So, and, and you know this because you were in sales. You, you start off contacting everybody and then you qualify them and that reduces the funnel a little bit. And then you present a test opportunity and that reduces the funnel a little bit. Um, but we're talking to, to as many people as we can that have a need for a well-known brand in their fresh guacamole and or salsa categories. And, and again, the good news is, is making salsa and guacamole, we've been doing for a long, 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 long time. But now we get to do it with a, a great, well-known brand name in the U.S. Now, I don't mean to uh, ask you this out of left field, but this is out of left field. But uh, technology is, you know, I spend a lot of time covering technology. It's always on my mind. Being, being here in Silicon Valley, um, uh, there's not much not much fruit grown in Silicon Valley anymore, and there used to be stone fruits like crazy. Um, how has enterprise technology changed for you? What's the most exciting thing you've got going on that lets you do something differently? Maybe it's CRM software that lets you manage that sales funnel. Maybe I, mean, I don't know. You know, I think the the produce industry has has adopted analytics probably a little bit later than the rest of the, the store. And it's certainly less than the center store, you know, the, the general mills or the, or the P and G's of the world. And, and part of that has to do with a long time. We just had PLU stickers. There were no barcodes. So industry data was, was tough to get, but I'm ex I am really excited about that. How analytics is helping us shape our business decisions going forward everywhere from the shop floor, um, in our prepared food segment to our operating uh, facilities in our in our grown and avocado business to our sales structure. We're trying to track data and then analyze that data to provide unique value for for either us or our customers. And I think that the, I, when you talk about that data collection, data synthesis, maybe even artificial intelligence to help us um, manage data and, and potentially draw conclusions faster than, than, well, certainly I can, but even our talented team can. Um, I, I, that's, the, that's the one that I'm most excited about in the future. Certainly there's other things. Automation, it, it's becoming easier to uh, depulp avocados. It's becoming easier to cut fresh fruit and vegetables. It's becoming easier to package those. So automation is, is another technology that, that is helping us. But I'm really excited about the impact that analytics can have in our business from sourcing to production to sales. Any specific companies you're working with? Um, I, I would say not that we're, we've disclosed publicly, but uh, we, I'd also say this is an area where we have some catching up to do as well, Corey. So just in transparency, but the opportunities there, and I'm excited about it. And there's a whole list of, of, public companies that have, have tried to do something better with analytics. I, I mean, if you remember, Kroger, Kroger bought Dunhumby and then turned that into their 8451 division and, and are using that for shopper and consumer data as just an example. Well, uh, fascinating company, fascinating business. I don't know how often we'll get more, more often we'll get to talk about guacamole margins, but hopefully when we do, we'll be talking to Brian Cocker um, of Calavo Growers. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the time and uh, look forward to catching up on uh, all your next guests and topics. Fantastic. All right, coming up next, we're going to have the bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about 
the Calavo business when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And with all the ways to listen to the Drill Down podcast, hey, tell a friend. Let someone know why you find these business discussions interesting. See if you can bring them into the Drill Down fold and get them as new subscribers to our show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We are back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Cavallo growers. So uh, last year, the U.S. saw an 8.5% reduction in U.S. import volume. But that number, that number of 13%, that was the growth rate of avocado sales for this company last year, despite the reduction of U.S. imports. Uh, really interesting how these guys are are uh, are beating the trend, where imports are down but their revenues are up. Uh, this company really uh, crushing it. Well, I think avocados, the popularity of avocados, is not going to wane anytime soon. No, and these guys are getting ready for it. I think it'll be interesting to see what it what if any business this General Mills who really moves the needle for them. They're not really guiding towards it, but it does seem like that uh, old El Paso brand could do great things for them. Yeah, and you know, it's worth noting that this company has been around since 1924. They know yep. avocados. They know the business. So, uh, I don't know. It's, it was, a, I, lo- I really like this conversation. All right, good stuff. Isaac, thank you very much. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson stitches this all together and makes it sound good. He's our editor extraordinaire. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.